This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today, John Myers, was called to the bar in Manitoba in 1991 and is a partner at Taylor McCaffrey LLP. He practices primarily in the field of intellectual property, protection, and enforcement. John has appeared before all levels of court in Manitoba, the Federal Court, the Federal Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. John, it's an honor to welcome you to this edition of Humans on Rights. Great to be here, Stu. So, John, there's something else that I want to, I left out purposely to continue this introduction because it'll deal with what we're going to talk about today. And that is the fact that you are a three-time recipient of the Manitoba Bar Association's Pro Bono Certificate of Recognition for your work in public interest advocacy, and in particular, a co-recipient of the Access to Justice Award for your work representing three Manitobans that requested Carter exemption orders, allowing them to receive medical assistance in dying. We're going to talk about that in detail, but I just want to close again by acknowledging the kind of work that you've done that you did receive in 2018. You were given the Law Society's Richard J. Scott Award, which recognizes excellence in promoting the rule of law. John, uh, there's a lot to unpack here, but I, I do want to go back to the fact that you were involved in Manitobans that requested the Carter exemption orders. There's a lot of conversation today in Ottawa around Bill C-7, but I wanted to sort of start at the beginning. You know, you're an expert in this field, you're local, and I'm delighted to have you on this podcast. Can you give a sense of what is made the definition, and sometimes people make reference to assisted suicide. Can you just Maybe give us a sense, and let's start there, and then we'll start this uh, conversation, please. Sure. Well, MAID is the acronym for Medical Assistance in Dying that was formalized by in Bill, Bill C-14 by the Parliament of Canada. It was also referred to as Physician-Assisted Death prior to the acronym MAID being developed. And as distinguished from assisting suicide, medical assistance in dying involves the assistance of medical professionals. So it's a way of assisting a person to terminate their life, but it's distinguishable from the criminal code provisions that we have in Canada, which prohibit assisted suicide. So if you, my friend Stu, uh, were in very difficult circumstances and you wanted some assistance in ending your own life, I can't do that for you. As much as I would want to help you, Mm -hmm. it would be illegal for me to do that. But what the Supreme Court of Canada did in the Carter case in February of 2015 was it used uh, an interpretive device called reading down. So the criminal code provision still is there, but they've created now amendments to the criminal code and the Supreme Court of Canada in finding a charter right uh, laid the groundwork for the criminal code amendments that sets out a whole regime that will allow a medical professional, typically a physician or nurse practitioner, and then a team of medical professionals that work with 
the lead person to to assist somebody in in terminating their life. So we've had assisted suicide around for a long time. It people have uh, helped others uh, end their lives at great risk. Uh, in some cases, people have been prosecuted for that. And keep in mind that committing suicide is not a crime. Right. If if I tried to commit suicide and I didn't succeed, right. uh, they're not going to come to the hospital and charge me criminally for trying to take my own life. But if somebody does help me, uh, then that's a criminal offense and it remains a criminal offense in Canada. But we at least now have uh, criminal code provisions that allow for medical assistance in dying. And the Supreme Court of Canada, as I said before, put all of that in motion in its decision in Carter. But you know, when you when you look at the history here, you, you have to actually look way back to the Sue Rodriguez case, which occurred back in the early 90s. And so, John, let me just ask you on this question. Is that if somebody were to say, when did medically assistance in dying? What, what, what is what's the beginning? Would you say that that would be sort of where it started, at least from a conversational and a legislative standpoint? I'm sure that there was discussion in society uh, about that before Sue Rodriguez launched her own court challenge to the assisted dying provisions in the criminal code. But I would say that when it was really coming into force in Canadian discussion was in in the early 90s when she launched her court challenge. And she she was a Victoria-based woman who had ALS or what's commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And she teamed up with an organization actually based in Victoria, the Right to Die Society, which was founded by a, a gentleman by the name of John Hofsess. And the two of them formulated a court challenge, uh, which made it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and in a decision in 1993, the court split 5-4. And really, uh, there wasn't enough of a societal consensus back at that time. Uh, to allow her the remedy that she wanted. Uh, Interestingly enough, though, she was able to get a physician-assisted death. At least that was what was reported by some of the people who were very supportive of her, like Sven Robinson and some physicians. No one was ever charged. None of the details were ever published. But she did, in the end, she did receive what she was, was looking for. And John, let me just ask on that sort of the process to here's a, a woman in Victoria, as you say, has uh, ALS um, and wants to basically at this, that point look for a way to end her life. How is it that it gets from a conversation in BC to ultimately get up to the Supreme Court? Well, there was, there was an initial court challenge um, to the provisions. You see, her lawyer in that particular case wanted to have the entire section of the criminal code struck down. So in effect, there would be no law against assisting a person to commit suicide. And the main concerns, of course, were just, you know, vulnerable people, people with disabilities being very concerned that this might represent open season on their lives from family members who might not have the most noble of motives uh, wanting to, uh, you know, get them out of the way. And, And what are we saying as a society if we're liberalizing uh, an ability for people to help others to to commit suicide. And so there, there wasn't much of a societal consensus. It did go to the BC Court of Appeal, where uh, at least in the dissenting judgment, there was a, a path that would uh, have allowed some form of medical assistance in dying. 
went to the Supreme Court of Canada and Ms. Rodriguez was not successful in getting the remedy that she was looking for. And it took uh, another uh, almost 20 years uh, for the issue to come back before the Supreme Court. And again, it had to start to make its way up the system uh, until it reached the Supreme Court of Canada again in February 2015 for the court to look at the issue again and ask itself, you know, has have circumstances changed? Uh, is society ready to, to grant people uh, the kind of request that Sue Rodriguez was asking for uh, back in 93? And, and keep in mind that this is a charter right now that we have as Canadians to a medically assisted death based on the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in, in Carter. And some people don't fully understand what that means. And it, it was the same issue for Sue Rodriguez as it was for uh, Ms. Carter. Uh, why should I have to take my own life through what are often very tragic means, through pill overdoses or jumping off a balcony or getting hit by a train, whatever form suicide could take? Why should I have to uh, leave this planet in a way like that? Or at a time when I'm really not ready to, but because I won't be able to with ALS, I won't be able to lift the pill bottle and the glass to take the fatal dose of medication or do what I need to do uh, to commit suicide. Just because I won't be able to physically do that, that's unfair, and that's a breach of my charter rights. And the Supreme Court of Canada found that the provisions of the criminal code that prevented uh, a physician-assisted death were unconstitutional. And so what they carved out was an exemption that allows people that met certain criteria uh, to be able to receive a physician-assisted death. But what the court did was they suspended the operation of that for one year to give the federal government an opportunity to legislate in the area. And what happened was, and we'll, we'll talk about this, there was a bit of a delay and it didn't get enacted for about 16 months. The court also um, held later that when the federal government asked for an extension of time, the court permitted people who met the criteria that they'd established in the Carter case to apply for an exemption so that they would be allowed to receive a physician-assisted death while the government was formulating a, a new law. So, John, you mentioned the Carter case, and it's quite, uh, we've talked about this offline, and I've heard you speak about it many, many times, but maybe just share with those that are listening, what, what is the Carter case? What did it mean and in, in terms of advancing this conversation that we're talking about today with MAID? Well, in, in Carter, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada was dealing with um, a court case that had been start, started by Lee Carter, Gloria Taylor, Hollis Johnson, and William uh, and the court had to deal with, as I was saying before, um, can we grant somebody a physician-assisted death that meets certain criteria in a way that will not be the subject of abuse uh, and still preserve uh, the protections that are provided by the criminal code? So what they established in the Carter decision, and this was released on February 6, 2015, that you had to be an adult person that you had to be uh, qualified to receive medical services in Canada. But the court said you had to be an adult person, that you had to clearly consent to the termination of life, 
and that you had a grievous and irremediable medical condition that causes enduring suffering that is intolerable to the individual in their circumstances. So this is for people who are being offered a variety of treatments that are no longer options that are acceptable to them. And um, that essentially is what the Carter case established. Uh, and as I said, Canada had a year to enact legislation. And during this, this all came to be during the Harper administration. And during that year, uh, an election was held in October. When the Liberals came in in October of 2019, they discovered that the file had not been advanced significantly and went back to court and obtained a four-month extension of time to legislate. The, court, the, the, the government wanted six months and the court gave them four months. But now we had this Carter criteria to deal with. So the Supreme Court, in granting the extension of time, also allowed people who met the Carter criteria that I just mentioned before to apply to court for a Carter exemption order. And those persons could be assisted before the new legislation was passed. And there would be no liability to the physicians, the nurses, the pharmacists, the social workers, anybody who was involved in providing the service. And there were 31 Canadians across Canada who made a Carter exemption application and, and three of them were uh, from Manitoba. So, which, which is what you were involved in. I helped the three families get through the Carter exemption process, which was a pretty difficult process for families who are clearly about to lose a loved one, mm-hmm. now have to focus a certain amount of their energies on court applications, affidavits, setting out the criteria, a spouse giving an affidavit why they supported um, their spouse's decision. Um, and and just satisfying the court that all the safeguards were in place. But, you know, a stress that these folks could certainly uh, have done without, but that's what the Supreme Court of Canada essentially said you, you'll, you'll have to do if you want one of these orders. And so that's what we did. And John, just so I understand, as you say, there was an exemption there the, the, on, on the Carter decision, understanding that there had been a change in government. And so they allowed the new government, uh, would have been the, the Trudeau government, to look at this. Right. It, was there ever a sense, because you were directly involved in this in Manitoba, was there ever a sense that something might change, that, that, that something could change while you're in the process of using that Carter exemption? Well, I think a lot of provinces needed to catch up because here you have the court saying, okay, we're going to grant the government a four-month extension to legislate. You can have this right if you meet the criteria, but not all provinces were as well set up as Manitoba was to be able to deal with those requests. So uh, here, our College of Physicians and Surgeons had already passed a bylaw and established a protocol that would need to be followed. Uh, and we already had a, a made team that was coming together, a, a dedicated group that would look after those first three cases, the same people, the same expertise being brought to the table. So uh, we were in a pretty good position uh, to deal with this. But in some provinces, I think it was more of a challenge. But uh, in the end, 31 people took took the opportunity to receive a medically assisted death prior to uh, the changing of the federal law. And and so, John, love to explore a little bit about, you know, your personal involvement with this, uh, because, you know, it's, <laughs> I understand, you know, there's a legal element and, and, you know, you've been awarded for your ability to sort of understand the law. 
but the the notion that this is this is law, but it's got to be tremendously uh, emotionally compassionate uh, that is is calling upon you to sort of be a part of of this whole process. Would you just share what did you how did you feel going through this? Some of the elements that you had to deal with personally. And maybe talk a little bit about what the team, just talk about some of the people that made up this team that you were involved in for these three uh, Manitoba people that did receive this Carter exemption. Well, you're, you're right. It's, it is very emotional because you're working with an individual who wants to, who's in a lot of suffering. And we're not talking about people uh, with disabilities that are enduring you know, a long path ahead of them. These, these were people that had acute conditions were suffering tremendous pain that was intolerable to them, had been through any number of treatments already, and were just not getting anywhere. So they they were frustrated with their lack of progress and were suffering greatly. And then you're dealing with, as I said before, you're dealing with a spouse and family members who know that they're in their last days or weeks with their loved one. And we were in a bit of a race against time because at that time, and still to this day, you need to have mental capacity to be able to um, give your consent to the team or the individual physicians that are with you uh, at the time you're going to receive the procedure. So there's always a risk when you're dealing with pain management and people who are suffering that you're going to medicate them in ways that are going to diminish their ability to, to have capacity and to consent. So on the first one that I worked on, we were in a bit of a race against time. And we also, we were only the second case in Canada to be decided. Mm. It was a decision of Chief Justice Glenn Choyal. And so we didn't really have a lot of precedent material to work with. So um, the legal team that we put together uh, had to, think fairly creatively in terms of how we were going to do this. Uh, There were a lot of privacy considerations that we had to be concerned about, not only the privacy of the individuals who were going to go to court, but we also had the privacy of the medical practitioners because there's a certain stigma associated with being a provider in this area. Um, Not everybody uh, in the community or in the medical community supported MAID as, as an option. And so uh, we were trying to protect the identities of all of those people involved. So we had to file court materials uh, where there was one set of materials for the parties and the judge, but then respecting the open court principle, we had to file a whole other set of materials that were open to the public. So the public could understand exactly what we were doing here, Right. getting the media on side. Uh, We didn't even have to get a publication ban in the case, except during the course of the hearing. The judge acknowledged that if there's a slip or something happens where we say something on the record that should not actually go public, that there would be an interim ban on publicizing certain types of information. But we did never needed a formal ban because we were able to put materials together uh, that told the story of the people that were asking for the orders, what the law was, and what the medical professionals were going to be able to do to make sure that there were all the safeguards in place that somebody should have who's going through this process. So it was certainly not something that in my 31 years of practice I'd ever experienced before. And I don't think I'll ever experience again. It was a, There was a certain intensity to the whole thing. And I think after it was all over, I certainly felt like I'd, I'd been through 
quite the experience. I don't know that I would say that I had post-traumatic stress disorder from it, but I certainly, yeah. uh, you know, having met people, having gone through an intense experience with three different families, and then when it's all over and it's done, you know, you've you've lost three people, right? And you've participated in that journey with people, so it's it was certainly a, an intense process. And there was a lot of media interest. So at the time, I, I did quite a few interviews uh, with different media outlets, and I did some public speaking at conferences because there was a lot of misunderstanding about what exactly was going on here. And some people had a lot of concerns about whether we were going too far as a society and, and what, tell us about who these people are. So it, it was... Uh, uh, for for a variety of reasons, it was um, it was a pretty intense time, uh, but one where, you know, I made a lifelong friendships. I think with three families, yeah, and uh, we continue to stay in touch, and so that's a nice uh, thing to be part of. Well, and you don't do it for these reasons, John, but I mean, you're a part of, of, of history as we are going to start talking about Bill 14, Bill C7, et cetera. But, you know, I just come back to if, if this is the appropriate time just to ask you, because you mentioned one of the areas when the decisions are being made in the courts is the question around safeguards. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how did you ensure from a, from a legal standpoint, what's those, what do safeguards look like? Well, I, I think during the Carter exemption period, uh, we had to turn to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, obviously, who govern the practice of physicians. And there was some input from the College of Nurses and Pharmacists because they all play a role. And uh, setting up a regime where there was not only a first assessment of the person who wanted to receive MAID, but that there were subsequent assessments done by a separate physician. Again, getting to the bottom of a few questions. First of all, did they meet the criteria that had been established in Carter? Was there any sense that the individual was under any pressure from outside influences? Did the person fully understand other treatment options? And a really a caring approach to trying to find out whether there were other ways to alleviate that person's suffering other than choosing made. And so all of those kinds of assessments were being made. And when we went to court, we had to serve the Attorney General of Canada, who had a lawyer at court. We served the AG of Manitoba, who had two lawyers at court that we had to deal with on the terms of the order and how everything would happen. And how will the death be reported? Uh, what do we do with the pharmaceuticals that have to be you know, taken from a dispensary? And then what do we do if there's any leftover? How are they removed? I mean, all of these sort of technical issues that are being looked at by the two governments. Then we had a lawyer representing the actual physicians that were going to be involved in the process. And then somebody from the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, a lawyer representing them. So as you can see, I'm representing an applicant, mm -hmm. uh, and on the other side of the table are all of those societal interests that are represented to make sure that this is being done in the most appropriate way and, and all of the safeguards are being respected. And we were able to present to the judge a picture in the materials that we filed that this was a very well thought out, carefully considered decision by the person involved 
and also the the team that was going to be providing the services. In one case, the person had a seriously advanced ALS, and we needed a speech-language pathologist to help us interpret what she was telling us uh, and to ensure that she was consenting to, to what she was about to go through. In another case, we needed a social worker, we needed a psychiatrist, all of these things contributing to making sure that we had the consent that we needed. So those are the kinds of safeguards that were put in place without legislation. Mm -hmm. And now here we are several years later with the Bill C-14, as you refer to, and and Bill C-7 that have a lot of these safeguards built right into them. But we were working with College of Physicians and Surgeons guidelines and quite, quite frankly, a lot of common sense from the people who were involved to make sure that we could get in front of a judge and satisfy a judge that all of these considerations were being looked into. You know, the last thing that you want to be doing is providing a service like this, which is going to end somebody's life without exploring whether that person has considered all available alternatives. So I think that was a very important part of what everybody was trying to do. Well, and you obviously were successful in the sense that um, of the 31, three in Manitoba, which you were and your team were involved in. And again, you know, thanks for sharing that. It's an emotional, personal part of your life, your professional life. So I really appreciate you you sharing that with uh, with with me and the people listening. Well, you know, it was an honor to work with those families. And um, I can tell you that the, the main team in Manitoba, the, the professionals who have signed up to provide this service, which is not easy. Yeah, It's not easy to provide palliative care services. It's not easy to provide maid services. They're, they're extraordinary people. Again, that's a whole other, if I could use the word family in the big sense that you start to become involved with uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, John, maybe we could just uh, sort of shift a little bit from the Carter decision, the Carter exemption, and then into Bill 14, which will eventually take us to C7, where where we talk about today. But just again, walk us through kind of the transition that took us to 14 and some of the issues, challenges, some of the good things, and then where we get to C7. As I said, the the Carter exemption was extended for an additional four months. So it wasn't until June 17th of 2016 that Bill C-14 came into law. And there was um, a lot of debate uh, around what to include in the law, how far to go uh, with with this new charter right uh, that had been established in Carter. People very supportive, some people very concerned about where we were heading as a society. Uh, it went up to the Senate back then who came back with certain changes that they wanted to see. So an interesting interplay between the House of Commons and the Senate to come up with the final version of C-14. What they came up with in the end was five key criteria. One, you must be eligible to receive healthcare services in Canada. So this isn't sort of a death tourism Mm -hmm. uh, country. You you have to actually be an established resident here. You must be at least uh, 18 years of age. You have to have a grievous, irremediable medical condition, and that comes out of the Carter decision. The person must make a voluntary request, and the person must give informed consent. So those were the, the, the basics. And then what is an irremediable medical condition? 
well, it has to be serious, incurable illness, disease, or disability. And it had to be in an advanced state. Uh, the person has to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. So that was generally what the legislation required. You must be suffering, enduring physical suffering that is intolerable to them and cannot be relieved by a treatment acceptable to them. So that comes out of the Carter decision. And then the key provision that was quite controversial, natural death has become reasonably foreseeable, taking into account the medical circumstances of the person. There was no need to be specific for, like, you didn't need to have a specific prognosis or a specific length of time. But as a general rule, the practitioners were trying to look for somebody who had maybe four to six months to live with their current condition. And what you're doing is you're alleviating the suffering of having somebody live out those four to six months and to help them out earlier, help them out of their misery earlier. And there were a series of safeguards that were put into the legislation. And the most important safeguard in the end was an ability for the person to consent to the procedure right up until the moment before it was carried out. So here you are, you, you have to maintain your capacity so that at the final moment of your life, you can say to the provider, yes, I'm ready to go. I understand what's going to happen to me. I understand that there are other treatments available and I don't want any of it. I want to go. That's in essence what you have to be able to communicate <clears throat> however you can do that. I was just going to ask you that question in terms of, you know, the ability to kind of communicate that. I, you know, as you and I freely talk and use hand signals and all sorts of things, was there a concern about what that communication might look like and some concerns about how realistic would that communication actually be from a legal interpretation? Well, I think it's it's like any decision that's made, you have to be able to demonstrate that there's capacity to sign a will, to sign a power of attorney. The lawyer who is meeting with you has to be satisfied that you understand the nature of the decision you're making and you can communicate that. And certainly as a lawyer over the years, I've worked with people with disabilities for one reason or another who I've explained what they're about to sign thoroughly and they can mark an X because that's as, as able as they can be. And I'm satisfied that that represents their intent. I've even had situations where I've held a pen and and helped somebody to achieve what they want to do. In this particular case, you'd be able to give whatever verbal signals you could give. The, the physician has to be satisfied that it is a consent. That's why speech language pathologists were also involved in some cases, because some people who are dealing with certain types of disability would have a difficult time articulating vocally what they wanted. So you'd have somebody who would be there to uh, ensure that their voice was was heard. Right. That's how that uh, safeguard would be actualized. And I'm sure that this has pl been played out in many ways in many settings. But the bottom line is the person who's about to provide the service has to be satisfied that the person hasn't changed their mind. And the person has to be notified you know, as this is unfolding, you have the right, you do not have to go through with this. You have the right to change your mind. This is not some runaway train here. If you have changed your mind, that is perfectly okay.
And John, when you, you refer to sort of the team, you know, the, the team around made, and when you get to the point that we're talking about now, where, as you say, somebody has to make the decision that the question was asked and the person that is requesting made, you're satisfying a person or that team. Does it, is it that sort of all, everybody have to be involved or is it one person who would basically say, I've asked the question, I'm satisfied, we're going to proceed? You know, I think in many settings, people have chosen to receive made in the company of their families. And I would think, oh, I haven't been at one, but I would think that the, the, the lead practitioner, whether it's a, a doctor or a nurse practitioner, would want to minimize the number of people who have to be there in the room. So I would presume that in most settings, it would be one or two medical professionals who would be there in the end. Uh, you don't have to, you're not going to bring everybody else who's been involved in getting the individual to where they yeah. are. I'm glad to hear that because, you know, then there's always the element of dignity. And I mean, it's, as you said, it's an incredibly emotional process to begin with. So thanks for, yeah. for clarifying that. I think preserving people's privacy and dignity is very important. So Bill 14 is on the books. And, you know, today there's lots of conversation around Bill C7. Walk us through from 14 to C7, some of the concerns, some of the issues, um, your views on some of the elements and, uh, and, and where we're at today. Well, in BC 14, uh, the minister at the time, Jody Wilson-Raybould and the minister of health, Jane Philpott, both acknowledged and the government itself acknowledged that this was going to be uh, an iterative process. This wasn't where we're going to end up with made that this was legislation now to try and address some of the issues, but they weren't going to be dealing with all of the issues that were being discussed at the time. So they left three issues on the table. The first is mature minors. So what do we do with a 17 or 16 year old where courts have found uh, young people who are sufficiently briefed on their circumstances to allow them to refuse treatment. What are we going to do with them now when they're 17 and a half and they meet the criteria? Are we going to continue to refuse them the right to receive MAID? So the mature minors issue is on the table. The second issue was where mental disorder is the sole underlying condition, and that's in front of us in C7, which we'll come back to. So what do we do in those circumstances? And then advanced requests. So we can, in our own advanced requests and, and um, healthcare proxies, we can tell our proxy what we want in terms of treatment and what not to start. We can tell people close to us, if I can't speak for myself, my healthcare directive says, do not start chest compressions. Do not put me on a ventilator. Uh, do not put me on a defibrillator. I want to go. But we can't do that with MAID. We make a distinction between acts of omission, Got it. where the healthcare provider is omitting to provide a treatment modality, but we're very reluctant to sanction acts of commission, which is, if I look like this, if this is the menu of what my life looks like, you can inject me and take my life. We, we've made this distinction between Okay, she said, don't put her on a ventilator. She's going to die if we don't do that. But she's made a choice not to receive a treatment. We'll respect that. But we're not prepared 
on the other side, if, uh, you know, a person's been in a terrible accident, they're not likely to recover any uh, reasonable resemblance of what their life once was. And we put in a healthcare directive in those circumstances, if this is the way I look, I want you to end my life by taking an act. We can't do that right now. So that was left on the table. So John, let me explore that for just a second. So, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about healthcare directives. So just so I understand what you're saying is today, as you're able-minded, et cetera, you're putting your will together with your family, you can not in a, a health directive say, if I get to a certain stage, I want you to invoke MAID. Right. If I'm ever diagnosed with Alzheimer's or I'm showing dementia and I've now sunken into dementia, this is your cue to apply for MAID for me. Right. You can't do that. Cannot do that. Interesting. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And so Bill C-14 left a lot of people unhappy on both sides. For many, they didn't think that Bill C-14 went far enough. The government just was not prepared to, to tackle all of the issues. People were reminded that the Supreme Court of Canada didn't make this reasonable foreseeability criteria in Carter. That was something that the government of Canada decided to include in the legislation. And a lot of people are upset that advanced directives weren't recognized at the time of Bill C-14. The problem that we've just talked about, which is I can have this healthcare directive where I authorize my proxy not to start treatments or to withdraw treatments, but not to actually end my life if I'm in a state that I really do not want to continue living in. So uh, that was left undone. And and the um, the government, by the way, consulted broadly uh, after C-14. They even referred uh, those three issues that I just mentioned to different councils to, to receive uh, feedback. Uh, the councils of Canadian academies who writ, wrote extensive reports. There were big surveys that were done that were open to all Canadians to respond to, to express their views. What ended up happening uh, was two individuals in Quebec decided to bring a court challenge, and they challenged the provision in Bill C-14 that required that death be reasonably foreseeable. These two people came from the province of Quebec. Gladue and Mr. Truchon, and they issued a charter challenge to the uh, need for a person's death to be reasonably foreseeable. And on after a trial uh, on September 11th, 2019, the Quebec Superior Court struck down the requirement that death be reasonably foreseeable. Faced with that decision, the Quebec and Canadian governments could have appealed, but chose not to. There's some criticism right now of them for not appealing the decision and and seeking some guidance from the Supreme Court of Canada, but they didn't appeal. The Quebec court suspended the operation of that for six months, and then there have been two subsequent extensions of time, and there's some pressure on the government right now because the next one expires on February 26th. So the federal government is under some pressure to get the new legislation passed. What the court did as well is it granted what's called a constitutional exemption to both uh, Mr. Truchon and Madame Gladue. Uh, So if they wanted to receive MAID following receiving the decision, 
they were now able to get it without any problem. No more waiting for them. And uh, Mr. Truchon uh, went ahead and received MAID in April of 2020. But Madame Gladu, as far as I'm aware, is still still with us. And, and these are two separate individuals, the, the, these two? Two separate individuals um, living life with certain physical challenges who persuaded a court that their life had become intolerable. Now they have the right to receive uh, a medical-assisted death while we wait for the new law to come into place. So that takes me to what does Bill C-7 actually do? And it repeals, if, if and when passed, it repeals the provisions that natural death needs to be reasonably foreseeable. That's the first point. The second point is that if the sole underlying medical condition is mental illness, you're still not eligible to receive MAID. So they make that clear. Uh, if you've met the criteria for MAID and death is reasonably foreseeable, but then you lose capacity before the procedure, you'll still get MAID based on a prior agreement with the MAID provider. So if I've gone through the assessment process and uh, there's been a cooling off period and I, I qualify to receive MAID and between the date that I've qualified and the date when I was supposed to receive it, I now, because of any number of reasons, am not able to give clear-eyed consent, the one that we were talking about earlier, then based on a prior agreement with your MAID provider, you will get it. So this whole concern about loss of capacity for people who qualify will be solved by the legislation. And then it adds some safeguards to address potential problems um, and reduced some of the restrictions and there were issues to deal with witnesses and things like that. So they've made a number of uh, amendments to streamline the process. Some of them are a rehash of old safeguards about independent assessments and individuals informed of alternatives. And the person has given serious consideration. Those have all stayed. So um, you still have to have independent assessments. Um, you have to be informed of alternatives. You have to give serious consideration to them. One of the new things here is that because death doesn't have to be reasonably foreseeable, if you go through the process, uh, the medical professionals determine that you meet the Carter criteria or the, sorry, the Bill C-7 criteria, but death is not reasonably foreseeable, that you could live quite a long time with the condition that you have, there's a 90-day cooling off period. So during that 90 days, it gives the person who now has approval an opportunity to consider alternatives and to explore what those might be. So, um, you know, they're still trying to secure express consent from those people uh, who are still able to give it. Uh, but uh, where death is not reasonably foreseeable, there's this cooling off period. So, John, can you just explain that to me for just a second? So just maybe walk me through what the cooling off period, as you describe it, can you give me an example of how it, uh, it, it with respect to how the legislation is trying to enforce it? Can you give me an example of what that would look like? Well, uh, in many cases, people who suffer from progressive MS, for example, uh, who have significant uh, debilitating conditions, they meet the Carter criteria or the Bill C-14 criteria that uh, they're suffering intolerably. Uh, they, they're, they're just worn out from trying all the different treatment modalities, which are not helping. 
they're continuing to lose capacity and, and they just do not want to pursue further treatment, but they're not going to die within a reasonably foreseeable time, let's say four to six months, which was what physicians were looking at. But with, again, with a lot of flexibility built in and discretion built in there, they will have to wait a 90-day period before they can actually go and have the procedure. And lots of debate over, you know, 90 days versus another number. I mean, you know, you, right. you obviously they're trying to sort of just move this forward. As you said, I think, in when before we went live on air, just the conversation about the courts are trying to sort of understand where society is going and vice versa. Right. And, and it's the individual uh, who has a 90-day cooling off period, but I guess they have the comfort of knowing that they're now approved for made. they're in the 90-day cooling off period. And if something were to happen within that period, there is a discretion to, to shorten it. Now, in, the, in C7, there's no need for the final consent if all the other safeguards were met. So, you know, if, if, if everything has been moving along and the person lost capacity uh, in that last period of time, they won't have to consent at the end. You need to have an arrangement in writing with a medical practitioner uh, who's going to be performing the procedure. You have to be informed of the risks of losing capacity and consent to go ahead, even if you've lost capacity. So that has to be understood as part of the relationship with the provider. Uh, And then it goes on. Here's one of the safeguards. At the time, uh, a person does not demonstrate refusal by words, sounds, or gestures. So if the provider is now going ahead with somebody who can't consent, who has previously had an agreement to proceed even if they're not capable of consenting, if they don't demonstrate a refusal, you go ahead. But if they demonstrate any kind of reluctance or refusal at the time, then the earlier agreement and consent becomes invalid. That's a safeguard that's been built uh, into this uh, new legislation. Um, And it also anticipates some situations where uh, the medical assistance in dying doesn't involve the medical professional who's actually going to administer uh, the drugs at the end to hasten death, but where the individual uh, patient or individual person is the one who's controlling that. And if, if for some reason, after they administer the first substance, they're not able to con- complete the process, then a medical professional is entitled to step in and help complete it. So C7 deals with a lot of technical issues, but it's certainly responding to the Quebec court's decision. Uh, it, you know, it didn't narrow the decision only to the reasonable foreseeability question. It, it dealt with a number of other issues and some corresponding safeguards. So that takes us to what what is the Senate? There was a debate and, and a vote, and I believe the vote went uh, 66 to 19 in favor uh, of some amendments. The Senate wants advanced directives for dementia onset. So where you could now say, if this is what's happening to me and I want made, in addition to refusing treatment, you can ask your proxy to do that for you. So the Senate wants to deal with the advanced directives issue, whereas the House is not ready to deal with that yet. Uh, It also wants to place an 18-month limit on the restrictions related to situations where the person's mental illness is the sole underlying medical condition. So they want to put a sort of an 18-month sunset 
on that provision, which I guess will give Parliament more time to study the whole question of, of mental illness. It remains a very controversial issue for people who suffer from bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or very debilitating uh, mental illness. They argue that why should they be treated any differently than people who are intolerably suffering from physical disease uh, and disability? Why should they be treated differently? And there's a whole school of thought. And I, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp a little bit, just having been exposed to years in the, in the, in the, in the area of mental illness through family, that you know, with the right treatment modalities, the right drugs, there, there's always hope. And people with mental illness live with hope. And while I respect that some people are suffering intolerably, there are others who have emerged years later after being in very difficult circumstances from a mental health point of view and might have taken their lives under made, might have asked to have their life terminated under made, mm-hmm. that would have profoundly regretted it because they didn't live to see their recovery. So there's a tremendous amount of good arguments on both sides uh, on, on the question of, of, of mental illness. And, and there is a lot of concerns about where we're heading as a society with MAID and with Bill C-7 from people who live marginalized in our society, whether it's from disability or whether it's socioeconomic circumstances or uh, race-based factors in terms of what they live with. What is being done to improve the circumstances of persons who live with various types of disabilities or differing abilities? Are we too quick to be giving people with challenges an off-ramp with MAID and helping them to, into the next world? Uh, what are we doing about providing adequate palliative care, adequate medical and rehab services? What are we doing about access to quality jobs that pay a living wage, where many people with disabilities don't uh, have those opportunities? What are we doing to provide access to many of life's amenities? They're out of reach because of cost or physical barriers, supportive housing, uh, freedom from institutional living. Many people with disabilities still live in institutional settings. What are we doing to integrate people and to be represented in all fields of endeavor that we, so many of us, take for granted the opportunities that we have? So, and on religious grounds, there continue to be people who are profoundly opposed to the direction that we appear to be taking in liberalizing medical assistance in dying. On the other hand, uh, I think our generation, the boomers uh, and our, our parents to some extent, uh, have really been pushing this in the last few years where the Rodriguez case happens in 93. Not much happens in the courts until the 2000 teens, until we get to the Supreme Court in 2015. And now we're moving at a much quicker pace in terms of expanding this charter right. We are moving at a, a very slow pace in embracing this, but I think there's enough uh, consensus, I'm sure through polling and otherwise, that shows that people in this country are more in favor of liberalizing people's right to exit and, and control the circumstances of their own death than existed back in the early 90s where we were a more divided society on that issue. And, and John, would you say with your, you know, looking at this, uh, uh, this issue of made, 
would Canada be perceived to be a leader, a follower, more of the same? And in terms of other countries, would you say that there's a country that Canada might look towards to get advice or seek counsel? Or would Canadians be somebody who could offer that advice to other countries? I think that we found a, a way to try and balance the issues in C14 and trying to consult in a very meaningful way with Canadians between C14 and now C7. Uh, there are jurisdictions in the world where MAID has been much more liberalized, if I can use that word, in the Netherlands or Switzerland, where some Canadians had to go because they wouldn't qualify for MAID here, but were able to qualify there. I, I think that I think that we're striking a, a good balance, that taking our time, trying to figure out the best path for us to go to study the issue. One of the other Senate uh, requests is that we gather more race-based data as to who's signing up for MAID and whether we can learn anything from that. And the Senate's also asking that the government's five-year review of Bill C-14 uh, be accelerated, that we should be studying this more. So those are some of the things that the Senate is looking for. We'll see whether the House uh, agrees to any of it. We're hearing that the House is likely not going to agree to some of the things that the Senate wants for a number of reasons. But I, you know, to try and answer your question, I think we've done a, a pretty good job. We haven't made everybody happy. That Maybe that means that we're trying to, to strike the right balance as we move through this. I think inevitably this will become more liberalized as we move forward. But can we do it at a, we have to deal with the mature minors issue. That's just not dealt with here. There is a real disconnect when a 15 or 16-year-old Jehovah's Witness can say, I do not want a medic, I don't want a, a, a blood transfusion or, or, and refuse a treatment that will save their lives and a court will allow that 16-year-old, articulate, mature 16-year-old to refuse treatment, how it is we can deny that same 16-year-old made if they qualify simply because of age. You know, I love the way that you posed a number of questions uh, at the end, because I do think that that is something that you have always been very, very mindful of and how, you, how you've looked at this. And when we've talked about this conversation offline uh, many, many times, and I wondered if, um, you know, calls to action, if there was anything that you would suggest that listeners might view or might uh, uh, look at or read or something that might give them a sense uh, we're going to post your email, by the way, on our website if people want to talk directly with you. But is there something you might ask people that they might uh, they might look at to sort of learn more about it? Well, there are a lot of resources available out there. And if people are interested, I can provide them a resource list of cases and articles that that deal with all of these issues. You might want to read a book called Uncommon Will, The Death and Life of Sue Rodriguez, which was written by a woman named Lisa Burney and Sue Rodriguez herself. Uh, chronicling her life and her experiences. Uh, there are a number of YouTube videos about Gloria Taylor's struggle that led to the Carter decision. And I'll give you a link to find uh, a video on that. And we'll post that up on, on our website also. I, I think it's important for Canadians who, who are listening to this to make their views known. If you have strong views about where we are as a country and what we're doing, don't wait for the pollsters to call you and maybe by chance you know, you end up as one of those recent 1,000 that are surveyed. 
write letters to your MP, write letters to your member of the Legislative Assembly and tell them what you think about this, because they do need to hear from Canadians. They do need to get a sense of of, of what people are supportive of and what they're not supportive of. So I, I would encourage people to uh, get active uh, and educate yourself, because someday uh, you and you're we're all going to go. So at some point, uh, you're going to have to become familiar with what your options are. And if you can control the circumstances surrounding your own death, uh, I think that's a good thing. I think to get educated about it, uh, to, to have conversations with your family about it, make your make your wishes known. I think those are all really good things to do so you don't leave your family guessing about what it is you want. Yeah, and John, you know, it's a, that, that is a whole other conversation that we'll come back to because it is super important and it's a difficult conversation to have for, for so many people. And, you know, I say that on the basis that it's not something that's right in front of me. The people that you've talked to, the three Manitobans and their families that you helped, I mean, that was right in front of them. It wasn't a matter of, well, when I say it wasn't a matter of choice, they had a choice and they made a choice and you helped them through that. So, um, I just want to, I just want to say, John, um, this has been, uh, as always, when I talk to you about issues, very, very enlightening. And uh, uh, the fact that you made a very personal contribution here in Manitoba and you shared that with us, I just want to thank you personally. That, uh, that, that's, that, that was important. And um, it really brings this whole conversation about what's happening in people that are not necessarily dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, other than perhaps what they might read or they know somebody, you, you made it real and uh, because you were there on the front line and what you did. And I just want to say thank you for, for that. Thank you for your contribution today. Thank you for all of the pro bono stuff that you do, that uh, you're such a community uh, champion and uh, not only in the legal world, but in many other ways. And so I just want to sh- say thank you very much for sharing some time with me today on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been great to be with you, Stu, and I wish you well. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you on the other side of this. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie May Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.